I'm going to pray and just go straight into the text today. We're going to be um, in um, Acts chapter 11, verse 1, uh, going through verse 18, but we're going to skip a, a, a big chunk because uh, Peter's just going to be recapping everything. But I'm just going to jump right into this and uh, pray and ask the Lord to help us today as we get into the Word and um, prepare our, our souls, our hearts even to go into Holy Week. Oh, Father, I thank you so much that you are a very, very patient Father. Uh, but I, I have no desire to uh, um, escape, uh, you know, challenges or uh, things like that. Um, I know that this uh, life as a, as a Christian, um, we, we need to be challenged. We're going to be challenged. Um, we um, we want to come to you with humility and with meekness and gentleness, knowing that we, we don't know how everything works. We don't know um, all the answers to all the questions that we have. I, I love even the song that uh, we sang this morning that uh, we, oftentimes we just we don't really need answers. We just, we just need to know that you're there for us, that you care, that you're sovereign, that you're in control, that you can be trusted. And we know that's true because your word has given us those promises. Uh, I know we, we want answers to the questions, but um, we know ultimately the, the greatest answer that we can seek after is just is finding you and enjoying you. And so help us, even as we open up your word today, uh, we ask that your Holy Spirit would lead us into truth, uh, that as we maybe feel a little challenged today, but we definitely will in the next few weeks, uh, that your spirit would um, bring conviction, but also um, point us to Jesus, point us to freedom, point us to the, the, the lightness of his yoke. So we, we thank you that um, you are so good and patient with us. Help us to be patient with one another. Help us to enjoy our time each and every Sunday, every community group, every coffee, every dinner. We want to enjoy each other. We want to enjoy you. We want to enjoy the good graces you give us. So help us and lead us today. We love you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Acts chapter 11, verse 1 here. So this is after Peter uh, has just gone to Cornelius' house and preached the gospel. And Cornelius, these Gentiles, these outsiders who have no place to worship, they're kind of orphans spiritually. Uh, they have the gospel preached to them. They believe in Jesus. They get baptized, and they get born again. And it's kind of a crazy thing that Peter, first of all, was staying at a Gentile's home and then went and visited Cornelius and his Gentile family and preached the gospel. So this is a very controversial thing uh, that we looked at last week. Now, what it says in verse 1 is, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles, these non-Jews, these outsiders, they also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, that's a kind of a colloquial term for the Jews. So the Jews, they criticized him. They criticized him. They go, oh, wait, wait, wait. So a bunch of Gentiles, a bunch of non-Jews heard the word of God and believed in Jesus their response wasn't, wow, praise the Lord, this is awesome. Their response was, what were we doing hanging out with them? What, what's that all about? You know you're not allowed to do that. 
Right? They, they criticize him. Rather than looking at the positive, they just look at the negative. Right? They're just finding fault in Peter rather than rejoicing in the good thing that God has done. They said, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them? You hung out with sinful people? You hung out with outsiders, unclean people? How dare you? You, you call yourself a good Jew? You call yourself a Christian? You're, you're supposed to be our leader? What, what's going on? Do you see how insane this is? But as we're going to see in the next even few weeks, like we're just as insane as these people because this is what we do. This is what we do to each other. But here's what Peter did. He began and explained it to them in order. Now, verse 5 through 16, he, just, he recaps the story, so we're not going to read through all of that. But he walks through the whole thing. Yeah, here's what happened. There's this vision happened, and I went, and I was there with this family, and I preached the gospel. They got saved, and I baptized them. And so now, after that, in verse 17, this is what Peter says to follow up. He goes, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, I love this. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? Who do I think I am? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say, no, Lord. And Peter did, but he learned his lesson very quickly, which is great. Who am I to stand in God's way? Now, as we know, today is Palm Sunday. So we're going to be looking at what happened on Palm Sunday as a just amazing tie-in to this part of the story. Palm Sunday was the week before, the Sunday before Jesus was crucified. Jesus' time had come, his reputation was growing, the scrutiny was increasing, things were at a fever pitch. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they wanted him silenced. The Jewish zealots, they wanted him to rise up and take out the Romans. And then the Romans, they wanted to put down any potential insurrection. So no one wants Jesus. And now we come to the biggest event of the year in Jerusalem. The city was bursting at the seams with people. Jerusalem uh, at this time is the size of, of Disneyland and California Adventure combined. Okay, that's about the size of Jerusalem, the old city. But during Passover, it received 3 million travelers. That's 30 times more than your daily attendance at Disneyland. Does that sound like a really fun day? I mean, that sounds like torture. It's chaos in Jerusalem. And so Jesus chooses this event, this particular week, to fully unveil who he is and what he came to do in the most unmistakable way. And this is why we call Palm Sunday the triumphal entry. He is making it clear that he, the king of Jerusalem, is coming into town. And no one is going to make this mistake. The king of kings is coming into his city in triumph to declare his majesty, his kingship, and he comes riding in on a donkey to fulfill scripture. Now, if a king was coming in peace and to make peace, he would ride in on a donkey. This was a, a sure sign that this king wanted to make peace. But if he rode in on a horse, that meant war. So here's this king riding in on this donkey. So we have this interesting dynamic. The, the Pharisees and the Romans they see this as a threat. A horse or donkey, it doesn't really matter to them, right? To Rome or the Pharisees, they don't care if it's a horse or donkey. They know it's a declaration that I'm the king. So they could care less if he's a peaceful king or a war king. To them, this is a threat. 
He's declaring himself as king. Something's up. This isn't good for us. Then the Jewish zealots, they're waiting and looking for a Messiah who's coming for battle. So they see him on a donkey. They think, hmm, no, no, we need a war horse. We need a military leader who's going to take out Rome because they're ruining our culture, ruining our society. We want our country back. We want someone to come in and embarrass Rome, put them out and free us from the tyranny of Rome. So they see that donkey. They have nothing but disappointment, even disgust. They just see this as weakness. He's weaponless. His followers are nobodies. They're not fighters. They're cowards. They're soft. But with his actions, he's letting everyone know the nature of my kingdom is not as the nature of the kingdoms of this world. That's not the kind of kingdom I'm after. That's not the kind of king I am. Of course, Jesus knows of the varied conflicts of interest. He knows the varying unmet expectations. He knows that he won't be received by the Jewish leaders or by the Jewish zealots who want more from him. Luke, who wrote Acts, also says in his gospel, in Luke 19, 41, says, when they drew near and they saw the city, so he's coming in on this donkey, he's riding down the Mount of Olives, and he's looking at his city. He knows what he's going into. He knows the disappointment. He knows the vitriol. He knows the whole thing. When he saw the city, he wept over it. He wept. I mean, can you I'll just try to picture this in your head? Jesus riding on this donkey, coming into his city, and he starts weeping, he starts crying. Tears are running down his face as he looks at his city. Is, I mean, is that amazing? I, I don't, that's, that's, a, that's a hard picture for me to even put in my mind. He starts weeping. He says, oh, would that you, even you, if you knew that on this day the things that make for peace, but you don't want peace. You don't want peace. These things are hidden from your eyes, he says. You don't want peace. You want me to be something else that I'm not. I wish you just knew what I really came for. And the most fascinating thing happens. This man of peace, this, this king who was just weeping over his city, over his people, this king who comes to bring peace, suddenly he turns angry. He gets angry. So now this is the moment that the Jewish zealots have been waiting for. Like, yeah, he's getting angry. All right, that's what we're looking for here. Get off that donkey, get on the horse. I want angry Messiah. But here's the thing is that his anger wasn't towards Rome. It wasn't towards the government. That's not where his anger went. He didn't go up to Fort Antonia where the garrison of the Roman soldiers were. He didn't stage a, a protest or start a riot or any of those kinds of things. He's going into his city. Doesn't matter who's occupying it to him. Rome, well, whatever. This is his city. Whether they recognize it or not, this is his city. Rome was occupying and dealing treacherously, but he didn't go after the Roman leaders. He didn't stage a rebellion, rally the Jews to arms. He did none of that. You know where he went? He went to his temple. 
he went to his temple. Because the temple is the issue on his agenda. Not Rome, but the temple. And we need to be clear, it is his temple. Even though Rome built it, and the Pharisees administer it, it's his temple. Doesn't matter who built it. Doesn't matter who's in charge. It's his temple. And he's about to make that clear. John MacArthur says this about it. He says, what's going on militarily, politically, socially, economically, that's not the major issue. The Messiah did not come initially in his first coming to solve all those problems. Although, believe me, he will in his second coming solve those problems, all of them. It's not that those things don't matter. It's just that that wasn't the purpose that he came for. But before, MacArthur said, before he comes as King of Kings and Lord of Lords to establish his own glorious and eternal kingdom and to solve all the problems that exist in the earth today, he first of all must come and be received by men in their own hearts. That's his goal. That's his mission. And so his first coming was as Savior before he could come as full and final glorious king in his kingdom. And so his business is with worship. Not Rome, not government, not politics, but worship. Not with society, not with politics. Our Lord is not concerned with the people's relation to Rome. He's concerned with the people's relation to God. That is his focus. And that is a key understanding for why Jesus is going there to the temple. His business is worship. His people's worship. Your worship. My worship. Their hearts. Our hearts. That is his main issue. So he comes to his temple during this week of Passover. Look what Mark says in the Gospel of Mark chapter 11. They came to Jerusalem And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, is it not written? Don't you people know this? The word says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 56 but you have made it a den of robbers. So what's going on here? What's he talking about? A little background. The temple mount, the temple area, was this large area with a temple right in the middle, but there was multiple sections. Different sections were of different groups of people. Some were off limits to others. The most outer court was called the court of the Gentiles. Anyone was allowed to go there. You didn't have to be a Jew to go there. Didn't have to be a male to go there. Anyone. Anyone could go into the court of the Gentiles. That was not off limits to anyone. But with all the extra people coming into town and gathering for Passover, Jewish leaders found ways to extort the visitors, especially travelers and outsiders. So the court of the Gentiles during Passover week, uh, sarcastic uh, commentators from that era uh, used to uh, call it the, the, the swap meet of Annas. Annas was the high priest. So commentators from that day called it the swap meet of Annas, the high priest. Because Annas and Caiaphas and all these leaders, like, hey, we can make a buck here. All right, let's turn this thing into a little swap meet. You can find anything your heart desired in this 
court of the Gentiles. So we took this opportunity, start up this little swap meet. See, everyone that came in was required to bring a sacrifice to the temple. That's what this week of Passover was all about. But if you were traveling from afar, you couldn't really travel with this living sacrifice. Sheep or turtle doves, whatever it might be. You'd have to buy one once you got into town. Right? Think of any time you've gone on vacation, like I can't pack that, we're just going to have to get something when we get there, that type of thing. All right? So they kind of take advantage of the people. So what they did is they price gouged. Like, hey, we're going to set up shop here, we're going to sell all the things that are required, but we're going we're to multiply it. They would do sometimes 10, 15 times more than the actual value. And so these priests were robbers. That's why that was prophesied in Isaiah 56. You've turned my temple into a den of robbers. Right? You go to a, a baseball game or movies, you know, no outside food or drinks allowed. So you're like, oh, let's go get a soda. Oh, 15 bucks. Cool, right on. Right? That's not, America didn't invent that kind of greed. Right? This is historic human greed. Right? We've been extorting people since we first came into existence. Right? We've, been, we've been price gouging forever. It's not an American invention. So worship now was corrupted in the temple. This is why Jesus goes straight there. Not only that, though, but people on the outside, the outsiders, the Gentiles, it was their court that was being crowded out. The Gentiles and outsiders had nowhere to go to come and hear of the Lord, to hear, to pray, to really just hear the gospel. Notice again, Jesus' quote from Isaiah. Isn't it written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the Jews? No, it doesn't say that. My house shall be called a house of prayer for Israel. No, it doesn't say that. My house shall be called a prayer for the religious, the righteous, the people who've got their act together. It does not say that. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And what were the Pharisees doing? Crowding them out taken away their space. The only place they were allowed to even come and hear the gospel, they're like, no, we're setting up shop here. Sorry, you can't come. No room. They were crowding them out. This is what is angering Jesus. He's looking around going, how dare you do this to my house? To people who I want, I want them to hear of the good news of my father and you won't even give them a space. The nations, those on the outside of Israel, were given this place by God's design. God designed the court of the Gentiles. This was his idea. He gave it to them to be a place where they could pray and know the living God. But their place at the temple was apparently expendable. Yeah, we don't really need this. As long as we have our spot where us Jews can go, then we're fine. They ignored those who were in need, the outsiders, the lowly, the broken. So here the Prince of Peace who came to bring peace comes into his temple and finds that peace is not able to be had by those whom he has called to peace. Remember what we, we saw that in Ephesians chapter two last week, verse 17? He made peace for those who are near, the Jews, as well as those who are far off, the Gentiles. He desires to make peace 
between Jew and Gentile, making one body, one people. But he comes into his temple, and that's not even possible. Like, this is what I came to do. But I can't bring peace to people if they can't be here and even hear about it. So now the religious leaders are thinking, as he turns over the tables and starts calling people out, he goes, who do you think you are? You think you own this place? He's like, as a matter of fact, I do. (laughs) I am the Lord of the temple. Jesus alone has the right to put the temple in disarray. Jesus alone has the authority to have the curtain of the most holy place torn in half. He alone has that authority. Pharisees don't have that authority. Rome doesn't have that authority. This is God's temple. God's temple. He is the only one who has the authority to have the temple torn down completely just as it was prophesied. And that did happen in 70 AD, about 37 years after this story here. This is something only Jesus has the authority to do because this is his temple. This is not the priest's temple. This is not the zealot's temple. This is not Rome's temple. This is the temple of God and God alone. He alone has that authority to cleanse his temple. Now, you might not realize this, but this wasn't the first time that this happened. He did this two years previous, which was also Passover week. Kind of seems like a little preview to the one that we're we're looking at today. So this is the second time. But this time there's kind of a greater punctuation mark because because it comes right after his triumphal entry when he's declaring, I'm the king, this is my city, this is my temple. But we have to realize also that this isn't going to be the last time that he cleanses the temple. We see Jesus cleanse the temple one more time, but not in the way that we would expect. Let's look at John chapter 2. John chapter 2 has the first instance of him cleansing the temple, and we see a couple little details here that are really amazing. He told those who were selling the pigeons, the people, the extortioners, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So they didn't learn their lesson two years before. They're still doing it. Now, this is interesting. It says his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So so they're watching Jesus have this zeal, this passion, and they're recalling the Old Testament going, Oh, wow, like that, that was it. So they're kind of seeing it happen right before them. They're, they're connecting the dots, which is really cool. So the Jews said to him, well, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What gives you the authority? Prove it that you're allowed to do this. Jesus answered them. He said, destroy the temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Are you kidding me? You're going to raise it up in three days? But here is the deal. He was speaking not about the physical temple right there that Rome built. He was speaking about the temple of his body. Of his body. So this is a foretelling. Even It's a real life object lesson. Him turning over the tables is an object lesson for something more important. Because for us, church, the, the temple, the, you know, the physical temple, that doesn't, that doesn't have significance for us today. Right, And so he's saying, look, I'm talking about my body. This is what he was talking about. This is an object lesson about what he ultimately came to do. So when therefore, it says in verse 22, 
So therefore, in light of him saying this, in light of him saying, tear it down, I'll build it back up. When therefore he was raised from the dead. So think about this. When Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered. Okay, this is key. They remembered that he had said this. So after he was raised from the dead, they're going, oh, that's what that whole temple thing was all about. When he came and he turned over those tables, he was talking about this. He just rose from the grave. That's what he was pointing to. It was an object lesson for us. So, so they're, putting the dot, they're, they're, they're putting these dots together. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now let's look back to Acts, where we were in chapter 11. Are you starting to see how this experience of Peter is, seems to kind of start coming back into view for, for Peter. The Gentiles, they're not welcome, right? He's going back and the Jews are like, oh, you hung out with Gentiles? What's your problem? And I think if Peter's remembering, he's recalling what he saw Jesus do. And he's going, far be it from me to get in the way of the Lord. I saw what my Lord did at the temple on, on Passover week. I saw what he did. He wants the nations to come to him. And now we're seeing it actually happen. I need to make the adjustment. I think Peter's remembering this, these events here, the things that they, they saw him do and now are remembering. The Gentiles, I, I know they're, they're unclean, but he's, it's almost like he's saying to his Jewish brothers who are criticizing him, but where are they gonna go to worship? Where are the nations going to go? Jesus said, don't call unclean, but I made clean. Peter, it's like he's saying, I remember that his house is to be for all nations. How can I stand in the way of God? So there is a direct correlation between the cleansing of the temple and his righteous anger and the destruction of his own body on the cross. When he came in to turn over the tables and the temple, that was a foretelling of when his own body, his temple, would be destroyed on the cross. Which John clarifies that that is the true temple, his body. Now the meaning behind this event, this cleansing of the temple, was meant to be a foreshadowing of what's going to happen once and for all in just a few days. This was Sunday, Palm Sunday, and he was showing everyone what's about to happen on Friday. The temple's going to be torn down on Friday. It's going to be torn down on Friday, but it's going to be raised up in three days. And this is the best news about this, this eyebrow-raising event in the ministry of Jesus. It's the best news because it has to do with us. The turning over the tables has to do with us. Because in just a few days, the temple will be torn down, his own body. By doing so, God will raise up a cleansed temple once and for all. A temple that will never be corrupted by robbers and thieves. Right? Every year he would go and he would do this. He'd come back the next year. They're still doing it. But he's going to tear down the temple on Friday or have the temple torn down. And when he raises up, that temple will never, ever, ever be polluted ever again. And it's not that, it's not that he, his body needs cleansing. That's not what we're talking about here. But his intention was to be able to bring outsiders in as living stones to build the temple. So he's inviting the nations. I mentioned last week, unless you have Jewish blood in you, then you're a Gentile. 
So this has to do with you. He had the temple torn down, his own body, so the Jew, a Gentile, could be brought in as a, live, a purified living stone to build the temple. And he's going to create a perfectly cleansed temple. Jesus himself as the cornerstone with us as living stones. He's going to bear all the sins of the world, including your sins from yesterday, that you're going to do today, and the ones you're going to do tomorrow, and all the rest of your life. But on that crucifixion day, it's not going to be the righteous anger of Jesus upon money changers. That's not what happens on Friday. Friday is going to be different, a different righteous anger. It's going to be the righteous anger of God the Father, who's going to unleash all of his righteous anger, not on money changers, but on his own son. He's going to pour out all of his white hot anger on his son that fury of God God's zeal for his temple is going to come upon Jesus whose body is the temple that's what Jesus came for he came in as a humble king a prince of peace to make peace between God and man but as it stands those who would become part of that temple you and me outsiders part of his body, Jew and Gentile, we can't be part of that holy temple. We can't. Because we're filled with greed and sin. Because, because we're robbers. We rob in all kinds of ways. We have greed. We have bitterness. We have hatred, selfishness, sexual sin, lust. How can we be part of that? We will, we will pollute the temple. That's, that's the problem. But Christian, Christ came to cleanse you, to take your sin upon him so that you could be a pure living stone for a temple that will never, ever be polluted ever again. And you're going to be part of that. You are part of that right now. You're part of that. He came to bring peace between you and God. He made peace. He came to purify your hearts and make you clean, to cleanse you and cleanse your worship. He came to topple over the idolatry and false worship that's in your heart and in my heart, to put a stop to you finding your identity in other things. Worshiping false gods, false idols. He wants to turn over the tables in your heart. That's what he wants to do. He wants to push back. He wants to loosen the grip that you have on things that you get your worth and your identity from, your value. He wants to flip over those tables in your heart. He wants to purge out the things that stifle your prayer the things that, that, that crowd out your worship. You're like, oh, I don't, have, I don't have room for worship because I'm worshiping other things. I'm busy. I got other stuff I got to do. He wants to, he wants to push out the stuff that, that cuts you off from his word, that drowns out his word, that impairs your, your spiritual vision, the idols in your heart that are right here clouding you and distorting your view the idols that come in between you and God because he wants all of you 
every part of you, not just the inner court, but the outer court. He wants the whole, he wants the whole thing. Everything you do, he wants you to give glory to him and enjoy him forever. He wants to give you all the blessings of the spiritual realm, the heavenly realms. And so we come to worship with all of our hearts, but we don't come at the foot of a long-lost temporary building that has been destroyed and never been rebuilt. No, church, we come to worship at the foot of the ever-standing eternal Jesus, the true temple of God. And we get to become part of that temple as living stones. We get to go to Jesus. Now, one final observation. After the dust settles, everyone's scattered, I want you to see who's still there in the temple. Is it the Pharisees? No. Is it the Zealots? No. The Romans? No. Matthew chapter 21, verse 14. (laughs) And the blind and the lame, they came to him in the temple. The outsiders, the degenerates, those rejected by man, those who were unwelcomed, outsiders. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and guess what, church? He healed them. But, of course, when the chief priests and the scribes, they saw the wonderful things that he did, and they heard the children crying on the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David! They were indignant. Just like the Jews in Acts 10. You ate with the Gentiles? Oh, I can't believe this. Uh, Yeah, yeah, they got saved. But you ate with them? And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? He quotes from the Old Testament again. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Jesus left them and he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. Now let's go back. We're going to close up on the very tail end of this section in Acts, verse 17. Again, Peter says, so if then God gave the same gift to them, to Gentiles, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Here's the good news. Unlike the Pharisees, verse 18 These guys who at first were criticizing him, look what happens. Verse 18, when they heard these things, because he told the whole story, when they heard these things, they fell silent. I mean, they just were like, oh, I don't know what to say. I think they were kind of embarrassed because look what they did next. They glorified God. They said, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Change of heart. These hard-hearted, self-righteous Jews had a change of heart. So so church family, I I want you to know, if you've had, we talked about this last week, animosity towards specific people in your life, maybe that have hurt you, harmed you, whatever, or maybe it's people groups, whatever, that's, that's between you and the Lord. If you've had that, there is hope for you to have a changed heart. Because these guys instantly, they just heard a quick little recap and they're like, 
Oh, man. I mean, the Lord just gave them mercy and grace, opened their eyes to their judgmentalism, their self-righteousness, and their arrogance. And I'm just going to tell you, we all, we all have some of that in us. right? We all have some kind of arrogance or self-righteousness or indignation towards someone or some people group. Pray that the Lord would have mercy on you as he did with these Jews. Because people need to hear the gospel. They need to be saved. They need to be saved. I hope that we would have the same response that these Jews have when we are confronted and challenged. That we would desire salvation for the outsider. So this morning I would just invite all of us to just to come to Jesus Come to Jesus. Come to worship him. Come amazed that he has cleansed you. That he saved you. Come amazed at his his gentleness towards you, his humility, his his patience, his willingness to receive the righteous anger of God, his Father, to come upon him and drown him in that anger so that you and I could be built up into the perfect and holy temple of God. It's incredible. Come and, and, and be in awe of who Christ is. Fear the, the, the zeal of the Lord and his indignation towards your sin. Yes, we know our sin has been put upon Jesus, but it doesn't mean we're just flipping about our sin. We need to take this serious. Lord, I want you to cleanse this temple. I want you to work in me. We don't take this lightly because zeal for his house consumes him, still consumes him. Make room in the court of your heart for the outsider. Make room for those who maybe irritate you, those who you get annoyed at, those who disgust you. Make room for them in your heart. Don't crowd them out. This is not your temple. This is God's temple. Your mind, your heart, your body, it is God's temple, not yours. You've been bought for a price. Jesus is your Lord and your master. You are not your Lord and master. There's only one God and you are not him. Amen. So let me pray. And I'm gonna thank the Lord. I'm gonna, I, I love that this week, the Psalm that we opened up with was Psalm 66. I'm gonna pray the Psalm 66 for us. Thank the Lord for his goodness. I love, I just, I love that this is the psalm for this week. So let's pray and thank the Lord for his goodness towards us and his mercy. Father, we want to lift up praise to you. We want to glorify and sing of your glory, the glory of your name, and give you glorious praise for your awesome deeds the way that you have saved us, the way that you have extended mercy to us, outsiders, Gentiles. Lord, the whole earth worships you, sings praises to you. The rocks even would cry out to you if we remain silent. So Lord, we want to we come and see what you've done and we want outsiders to come and see what you have done. Whether that means inviting them into our homes or inviting them to church on Sundays or hanging out with them on our, our lunch break at work, we want them to come and see what you have done for us. Your awesome deeds. How you turned the sea into dry land. And let your people walk across as if on just dry land. It was 
amazing the different ways that you have provided for us. So Lord, we want to bless you. We want to worship you. We want to lift up your name. We want the sound of your praise be heard, not just in this room on a Sunday, but all through our week. We want to declare the good things of God. Help us, Lord, to be your followers, to be fishers of men. Help us not to crowd our hearts with things so thick that we don't have room for outsiders, for others who are in need. Give us your compassion, your patience. We want to become more and more like your son, Jesus. Father, we pray for this. We pray for your mercy. We, we can't change our hearts. These Jews in the story, they couldn't change their hearts. Only your spirit can change us. We're asking you, Holy Spirit, that you would change us. Make us more like the Son of God. We love you. We thank you. We worship you. We look forward to this week. As we come back uh, here on Friday to celebrate Good Friday and back here again on Sunday for Easter, we're just thankful, Lord, that we have these times that you've given us to gather together as your people to hear of your good deeds, to worship you. Thank you, and we love you, and it's in your son's mighty name we pray. Amen.